0: Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingwa, e Kaiorangi or waituhi or tamaki, no mai, harumai. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, waituhi or tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. From pop art influences to landscape, through advertising and the contested space of appropriation, much-loved and truly versatile artist Dick Frizzell has always immersed himself in the art around him. In his book, Me, According to the History of Art, a journey from cave art through Rubens and Tintoretto to Cezanne and Lichtenstein, Frizzell sets out to track the historical threads that sit within his DNA as a 21st century artist. It's a fun romp sitting on a bedrock of serious scholarship and reverence for the painters of the past, with masterful reimaginings of key work. In conversation with Finlay MacDonald, the art history lesson you've been waiting for unfolds in all its colourful glory. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Me and Art with Dick Frizzell. I'm me, he's Art. Uh, He's actually Dick Frizzell, I'm Finlay MacDonald, great pleasure to be here. Uh, Very brief housekeeping, you've probably all heard this before, but if you could remember to scan or sign in, wear a mask if you feel the need to, Uh, don't worry about leaving if you're feeling unwell, no one will mind, Um, apart from us if it's us that made you feel unwell, but let's hope not. There's nothing fancy about tonight's session. Um, We'll be chatting about Dick's life and times and his new book, Me According to the History of Art, which I can heartily recommend as well, and will be on sale outside, of course. We'll leave some time near the end for questions, and Dick will be signing copies of his book. If you um, want to live tweet the session, um, go for it. Um, Just be mindful of others when you're using your phones and have them on silent, of course. Okay. Uh, Dick Frizzell clearly needs very little introduction, uh, but I'd go so far as to say that his art through the decades is the best introduction anyway. <clears throat> Some of his works are virtual national iconography now, I think, um, and yes, we're talking about the Foursquare Guy and Mickey Titiki, but there's a lot more than that as the new book um, lays out, in very entertaining and quite surprising fashion. Um, it's also full of remarkable images by the author, renditions of works from all parts, all periods of art history, which of course raises the, or presents the challenge of how to talk about art. You're probably familiar with that Frank Zappa who when he said, um, writing about rock and roll is, is like dancing about architecture. But I guess there's some architects who probably wouldn't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but it does sort of raise the same absurdity factor. Um, speaking and looking are very different things. Um, the abstract is often quite ineffable. And meaning can definitely get lost in translation. So no pressure then, Dick. Um, shall we welcome the man of the hour properly one more time, ladies and gentlemen, Rick Frizzell. <clears throat> I was going to... Suggest that while we spoke he did a Rolf Harris and painted on the background then I thought let's not go anywhere near Rolf Harris Um, Can I can I just briefly get a quick show of hands? Um, Who studied art history at high school or university just roughly so yeah enough of us? I only ask this because it's a great first line in Dick's book Which is this art history's shit, isn't it? (laughs) Which really chimed with me. I studied it at uh, high school and loved it, and then it had it crushed out of me at university. Uh. So, first question: Tell me, tell us, what you meant by kicking off like that?
2: Uh, well, I—it was just one of those four in the morning ideas when I, you know, I was looking for a way into uh, to, uh, to establish the tone of the book, I suppose. And I'd, maybe I'd read it in, in someone else's book, but I just thought I, that the whole point of the book was to, to, is to write my way around this idea that it is, you know, can be crushing and, you know, this, uh, this Masonic order and everything else, that it, it always, that's why I started writing the book. And I just, that line just came to me, art history's shit, isn't it? And I thought, well, it's outrageous and it's, it's a great, First line, in fact, in fact, a lot of people that I, you know, r- early readers of the they didn't like it at all because they were saying, "Well, it's." But my point was, that the art history, might, and I finished the chapter, that introduction, which called the, and it wasn't called the forward, it was called the forewarned. That was the whole <coughs> idea. This thing must be working, obviously. Um, and I got to the end of the that forewarned, and I said, "Art history might be shit." But the history of art isn't. So that was my point that the subject, the way it had been sort of turned into this academic sort of mystery, you know, this closed shop with all the coding and this, everything else. And that's why I jumped into the Renaissance because that was the big the next one. You know, that's the one that that's where everyone comes to a screeching halt. Yeah, you know. we'll,
1: <clears throat> we'll, we'll get to the Renaissance. Yeah. We'll start with cave art in the stone age and <laughs> yeah. eventually get to the renaissance, <laughs> yeah, well, that's, um, what happened. <laughs> that's kind of what the book does. Um, I mean it's not just art history is it, like a lot of writing about art can be impenetrable and sort of, like you say, coded for initiates, were
2: you aware of that when you started writing about art? Yeah, that, yeah. well that was my whole point, I mean I've been, I've been to art school and I've, you know, and I've spent a whole lifetime reading um, uh, criticism and art biographies and everything else. And writers always seem to struggle with the actual thing. They, they can write about what they think it means for days, but the actual thing, that they, they, they just find some little wee thing and off they go and they express themselves basically through the content of the painting or, or they make shit up. I mean all that mid-20th century art writing is just so insanely over the top. You know, so that when you travel and you finally get to the art gallery and you go in and see this thing that you've been reading about down here in New Zealand, you know, and looking at the reproductions and reading, and then you get there and it's like, really? You know, it's just this thing, you know, because you're you're over-prepared, sort of under-prepared and over-prepared, you know. So I thought, well, maybe if I can make it just... If I can sort of demystify it, because I've got this big thing that you can... Demystifying is, is a trick, because it actually makes things more mysterious. You know, that it's, it, at least you can have a go, you know? Digging in. Anyway... Were you trying to demystify
1: yourself a little bit in the process or explain yourself? Ah, uh, um, yes. Because it is I a was, memoir as I well. Was,
2: I was definitely trying to, I was trying to... Um, figure out why I was even sitting there writing a book for publication about something as complicated as art. I mean, how did I even end up, like, sitting here in this big theatre talking to all these people, you know? It's amazing. I was talking to Rick Jagoski the other day out in the thing, and he was saying, it's funny, people have no idea when they ask us to talk at these things that we actually... It's like giving us a licence to sit up here and talk about ourselves. And I was like, who, who wouldn't want to do that, you know? <laughs> But this is the fun and easy bit. I
1: mean, anyone staring at the blank page, probably the blank canvas as well, knows oh, well, that it's daunting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're always fun when they're finished. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did the, the, the format of the book suggest itself? Because, I mean, in case you haven't actually seen it, it's filled with Dick's versions of many, many paintings from different eras and genres um, Many of which are actually, I mean, copies in the best sense of the word, and and other things, um, accompanied by your musings on their meaning and their place in your life. How did you land on that format?
2: Well, I knew, I knew I, this is going to be my history of art, and I've made that quite clear in the book. You know, I said if you're if you're reading this book and waiting to see your favourite painting appear, well, it's, it probably won't happen because they're all my favourite paintings. So, no, I mean, there's. There's ones that you know cross over to everyone. But the, I just blithely thought that I would I'd write this book. I had all, it was all in my head and it was starting to come out on the page, which is fascinating because then all this other stuff comes out that you didn't even know you knew. And uh, I've learnt that. And, of course, writing uh, fact requires a lot of fiction <laughs> to make it kind of work. So you make up all this stuff and uh, make up all this um, fact. And uh, then I thought I'd just sort of grab stuff off the internet and just stick it in the book. Hmm. You know, I thought I'd find a you know a nice high res image of the Caravaggio, and I just thought, I mean, who's going to read this thing? I mean, I'll probably get away with it. (laughs) And then, of course, as soon as the uh, Massey became involved, well, as Nicholas said, I mean, she said, "Dick, this is the publisher, the publisher." She said, the shit won't hit you; it'll go over your head and hit the vice chancellor." (laughs) You know, (laughs) so so, so, I said, "We better get a bit serious about." You know, And then, I, then I, uh, and I thought, well, how am I going to do it? Uh, how, how, will I, how will I make this thing? And my um, brother-in-law, Pat Pound over there in Melbourne, he said, why don't you do Frizzell versions of the paintings you want to use? Uh, which I thought, oh, OK, well, that sounds a good idea. But as soon as I started trying to do it, I thought, well, if, you're try- if I'm talking about Titian's Assumption of the Virgin Mary, one of my favourite paintings, and, the, and, on, and, and on opposite the text is a sort of a Mickey Mouse version of it. It would be like, eh? it, you know what I mean? It would completely bugger up the narrative. It would be all of a sudden the whole story would be about this, my interpretation of the Titian. And then I spoke to somebody else who told me that all the images on the internet the paintings are out of copyright, but the images that you 're looking at are owned by the galleries that curate the works, you know the Prado or whatever. so then I thought, well, if I paint my own, then it 's mine. You know what I mean so I'd started this trick, which i 'd used a, a few times in the past, where I did download the image on an A4 sheet of copy paper <laughs> and then with with my Canon desktop copier, so you know what they're like. They, you know the colours flat, and the, you know it's it's not an, a flash process. And then I, on the on the copy, on the printout, I worked over the top of the printout with gouache and coloured pencils, and depending what the you know the the detail of the thing. And I just keep working until the whole image was covered with me, basically. You know, so it still looked it looked like the and then we, then we photographed it and put it in the book. And so the funny thing is what you, when you're looking in the book at the reproduction of the painting, the actual original of what you're looking at is the same, same size as the image in the book. You know, when I held up the like if you go to, if you look at a the real reproduction of the assumption of the Virgin Mary and then you go and see the painting, it's like three stories high, you know, you think, wow. This is the thing about New Zealand is everything smaller or bigger than you thought it was going to be, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Like the Salvador Dali's only that big and the mm-hmm. Titian's this big and it's like very disorienting, but the, uh, with, my t- with my little humble little trick it was just this thing, s- size for size, it was weird.
1: The copyright element of it, I have to admit, hadn't even occurred to me properly till we were talking backstage. So you still had to go and
2: yeah, when the, when Go we got the up hoops. to the mid-20th century and copyright did actually kick in, you know, for Warhol, Picasso or whatever uh, Nicola, the publisher said because oh, I thought I was, doing, I was doing my own versions of them as well and Nicola said, oh I don't think that's going to fly, you know, it's like because to look at Titian it... Titian can't sue but... It, Titian, well, and the Prado's not going to sue because it's not their image, so I'm sort of safe there but with anyone else like Warhol or, you know, Andy uh, I mean the British, you know, Francis Bacon or Mm. whatever, it could could get very unruly. And uh, (laughs) and we tried it, we told them, and they said, "No, I don't know, a lot of people said they didn't, and then Nicholas said, we're going to have to start paying the fee. And and so we went to all these agencies, to the estate of all these dead artists, and most of them were fabulous, but it wasn't that expensive. And the, you know the Picasso estate more or less said knock yourself out, it was fantastic. And then, and then the but the estates that got sticky, like the uh, Braque. Why Brack? I mean Picasso said yes, and Brack said no. I mean who does he think he is? You know, bloody second stringer. You know. And uh, so then I, I said to Nicola, look, I've had that. She said, well, well. We'll leave. We'll leave, We'll leave it out. Or we'll put a blank square, and we'll write. The, the, they wouldn't let us do it, or something like that. <laughs> and uh, and I said, no. I've got this bright idea. I, a brilliant idea. I saw it in a movie, a Picasso movie, where they did all these fake Picassos. I said, I'll make paintings that look like the artist did it, but they, the painting never didn't, doesn't exist. You know. So I would get like two George Bracks Cubist works. Easy to you know fake them. I can tell you. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and you get. I got two <clears throat> cu- two cubist braks and then chop them up, chop them both up, and sort of <laughs> put them together. And what I'd and what I'd get out of the debris is a brand new brak that doesn't exist. <clears throat>
1: <clears throat> <clears throat> the brak I can see for someone yeah. of your talent might be easier to do some of the pieces in there, like say the Renaissance pieces, like um, that Van Eyck, the Arnolfini marriage. Yeah, well that was a tricky I remember one. studying that, that painting, it's an incredible piece. But what, what, when you create a version of it, what do you learn about the actual painting in the process?
2: Oh, that's interesting. A lot of people have asked me that, as if like doing that I would have seen deeper into the process or something, but, but I am simply do, I'm doing this trick it's got, it's a cold-blooded sort of analytical thing that I seem to be remarkably clever at, that, you know, for what whatever good that is. And I uh, and my reply was I didn't actually learn anything, but I had to l- I, I, but I had to use everything I've learned, right, to do it. So did you yeah. come to respect some of the craft and skill that you were the, well I certainly working ex- with. Uh, came to respect the res- the, s- the craft and the skill of me. Fair enough. Well, I mean, I'm doing. I did a lot of these things. You know what I mean? I could, I could do like a a Barnett Newman, you know, big, big orange rectangle with a line down the middle. I mean, I could do that before lunch. But the, but the uh, the Delacroix, you know, the Death of Sardanapalus, that shut me up for a day or two. You know. I had to use very sharp sepia pencils on that, you know. Good. And even then, I left, I left all the jewellery showing. You know, I thought, well, like, who's going to notice, you know? So there is a level of detail missing to the eagle. Well, there was a, le- a little level of detail I just kind of drew round. You know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that, you know, you, you have the talent to be able to do that, but I suspect that you've always had that God given talent. You, you've said in the past that. As a as a boy, you know, you were the boy that could draw at school.
2: Yes. Is yeah. it a gift? Is it a? Well, it's definitely a, it's definitely and it is a gift. I mean, it is something that I can that I can do. I mean, it took me a while to get used to it being a gift. I mean, I used to think it was some sort of weird handicap. Is Why? It like, well, you know, like I was the second hand man. You know, I could always and it, it, at art school it was fascinating in Canterbury in the fifties. Was it the 50s? Yeah, uh, yeah late 50s, um, early 60s. We, and the lecturers sort of encouraged this in an interesting way because New Zealand, let alone bloody Canterbury, we're so far away from the centre, you know, Paris or London or whatever, New York, that you've, the, to do art, which is what we're meant to be doing at art school, we did art that looked like art. Yeah. So I would like uh, I would like I worked my way through Picasso and then I worked my way through Miro and then I worked my way through John Bratby and then, you know I just kept on leaping and it, 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 and of course I was only a student so I didn't think it mattered you know and of course it didn't matter but then when I left I kept on doing it you know then I do I become I did a David Hockney for a while and then I fell in love with Peter Blake and and the, so the, this idea of Finding your your actual voice started to bewilder me, like where am I in all this? And then somehow, around about when I was about thirty five, it just sort of popped out. Yeah. But you obviously knew from a pretty early age that this was the thing that was calling you. Oh yeah, I knew. I knew when I was at um, high school that. Well, even that story about doing the illustration, you know, doing the Mickey Mouse and stuff. And the Donald Duck, that curvy beak—I seem the only one who'd figured it out. And they, so I that's the
1: thing about when you're at school and you're the guy that can draw. Yeah. there is a kind of cachet that comes with it, isn't oh, it? Oh, I can started. Draw, so
2: I, I quickly cottoned onto that. Yeah, you know that I was that I'm weirdly enough. And this is one of my favourite stories. The, uh, the te- at the end of the year, open day, the teacher—they used to uh, there was a, this big illustration would appear, a chalk drawing would appear on the blackboard. Of Santa Claus in a sleigh or whatever. And the teacher, one year, the teacher said to me, Richard, why don't you, you get up, come up here and draw the Father Christmas, you know, the sleigh? And I thought, well, that's weird. Why doesn't the teacher do it? <laughs> you know, I thought, isn't, isn't that what the teacher, and these God creatures that know everything? And, uh, and I thought, why is she asking me? And then I thought, I think it's probably because she can't do it. <laughs> and so I went up there and I thought, well, I don't, I don't think anyone else can. I don't think there's anyone in the whole school who can do this. You know, I thought, well, I'd better learn to monetise this immediately. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> but it did, it did give me a hint of this thing of being... Like, being the art guy was, was kind of special, yeah, yeah, interesting. But how encouraged was it? Is it true
1: that... Did I read it or hear you interviewed about it that you deliberately failed School C so that you could take art instead of maths?
2: Yes, I did. I mean, that's I had mum and dad decided I was going to. Be, well, dad was terrified that I was going to be a poofter and starving a garret and all this stuff. I don't know where he got these words from. You know, Garrett, poofter. You know, he was a merchant sailor. I, I, I yeah, it up. But he. Uh, so they decided because I liked tramping and I liked uh, drawing and I was quite good at maths. They came up with this brilliant solution that I'd be a surveyor that I would tramp around the hills of drawing, I don't know what, you know. And I thought, well, I don't think that's quite my plan. And so I said to them, and I can't believe they fell for this, if, what if I failed school cert next year, could I drop maths and you know, take art? And they obviously said yes, <laughs> if I failed. Right. And I hadn't failed at anything up at that point. So I mean, I mean, in, the, in the school cert, I just didn't do anything. <laughs> I wrote Happy Christmas on the, <laughs> on the history paper and things like that. Even then I nearly buggered it up, I got so keen on the English paper I nearly stuffed it up. But the, I failed and next year of course art and that was it. Yeah. That's true dedication, I have to say. Well it didn't seem like dedication to me at the time. I mean I loved school, I was happy, school was fun. And then uh, I was always hiding in the art room anyway. Mm. You know, hiding behind the door when everyone else is doing the swimming champs or something, you know. Could
1: you understand, or in hindsight, can you understand your father's anxiety about it? Uh, Well, knowing him, I can. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm sure there's many parents that, you know, when their son or daughter comes to them and says, I want to be an actor or I'm going to be a rock and roll star or something, and they go, oh my God.
2: I mean, you've had kids yourself now, so. Well, fortunately, mum had gone to art school. So she was, I mean, mum didn't know art from a hole in the ground, but she had been to art school, where they made, you know... Obviously um, failed then, didn't they? They made beaten silver ashtrays and things like that. All ah, right. right. In fact, half the hockey team went to art school with her just for the hell of it. It was an unusual situation. That was but, crafts. Yeah. But she, and she painted, she, you know, painted goldie portraits on wooden bowls and had them French polished down at the Freezing Works. <laughs> but, uh, my dad was the chief engineer. I think mum kept the carpentry department at the freezing where it's pretty employed full-time, making pig-shaped breadboards and, oh, God, I tell you. She was, everything the Woman's Weekly published, if it was felt Egyptian freezers, all of a sudden the house was full of felt Egyptian freezers or, or plaster fish-blowing bubbles up the wall, there were every, or Bambis or whatever, you know. So, it was, so she was secretly... She was always buying me the pencils and the paint, you know. Right. Yeah. Don't tell your father. <laughs> Mum's are good like that. Um, you
1: mentioned art school. How did you go as, a, as an art student?
2: What did you learn about yourself or what you wanted to do? or Was it well, helpful I,
1: technically? Well, well like? I
2: te- uh, oh, technically, <coughs> there's there no such thing as technique. <laughs> the, um, the, the most amazing thing about art school, and this is my favourite story too, that in, at Hastings Boys High School I had one mate in the art room with me, he was—he wasn't too bad, you know. I, I tolerated him, and uh, but when I got to art school, when I left Hastings, being the freak, you know, the guy who was always trying to grow a beard in the school holidays, and you know all these cow cocky sons trying to cut it off with nail scissors and stuff. The when I left Hastings and went to art school, on the first day, when we're in the room, our year, our intake, and I looked around, and I realised that. It getting me quite emotional. I looked around and I realised that everyone else in that room was the freak from their high school. You know, Timaru and all that, and they are all there, and we were all looking, all dressed up like, not, not trying to make too much, we didn't not look try-hard, but you know, we'd, with our fishnets, uh, crewneck sweaters and stuff. And all the girls looked like Joan Baez. It was unbelievable, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I just thought, wow, this is it. This Found is it. your tribe. Found your tribe, yeah. yeah. You know. And everyone was thinking that. So you know. yeah. This is Christchurch in the late
1: 50s, 60s. 59,
2: what was yeah. the scene
1: like then? When you went out, did you get you know, stared at?
2: Well, funnily enough, the campus, the, the, the campus was moving from the city out to Ireland. And the first two, uh, you know, what's the names that went out there, it was the engineering department, engineering school, and the art school. I mean, seriously, how weird was that? And that you couldn't get more different. So the engineering schools over here, with all the guys leaning out and whistling at all the girl art students over here, you know, it was yeah. a, a kind of an odd combination. So when you left
1: art school, by then you had a young family, or was that around the same oh, time? It was very young, So brand the, new. <laughs> a struggling artist, yeah, with no well, reputation
2: yet. Oh, that's when I started... Oh, I was just doing record... Co- well, I was, I, I was the boy who drew. Yeah. You know, people would come to me and say, you know, I want a record cover or I want a poster or I want a comic strip or... And that was just know. networking? You became
1: a commercial artist that way?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I did a few TV kids shows. In those days, TV was incredibly sort of analogue. The, 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 the woman would... You know, the Susie Cato type lady would read the book... And then someone there would be a big pile of illustrations on an easel that they push, pulled off, and of course, someone has to draw it. Yeah, a great, you know, It's like being a barber, there's always something needing drawing, you know. And you went into advertising, of course. Well, I strayed <laughs> into adver- I, I, I was in that funny period from art school when, I, like I was re- referred to earlier, where I had I knew that an artist was, was there to say something, right. Like an author or a playwright or whatever you, but I had no idea what that meant. What are you t- saying something you know contributing to the conversation, but i just didn't, i had no i just couldn 't figure it out so i would and when I strayed into it, cause I had to make a living I mean I had this young family yeah. hot water cylinder blowing up and all that stuff so we i got a friend of mine was in advertising, and I went into his office one day, and he, I watched him doing this. An ad for something, and I thought. Oh, I think I could do that, and I got in, and then I ended it up with Bob Harvey, and <laughs> I became an ad man. Yeah.
1: Did what did you learn from you know from the commercial world of advertising and art? Oh, I, mean, I,
2: I I th- I think I, I, it, it defined my entire life really. I had um, the thing about you had to be incredibly pragmatic and practical about it because of, like one day you were selling uh, bluebird chips. With your ad, and the next day you'd be selling a Mercedes Benz. So the, the 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 sort of leap from one to the other, you had to, and you had to apply the same amount of conceptual intensity to it. You couldn't say, "Well, these are only peanuts, so I'll just do this." this yeah. oh, this is a Mercedes, so I'd better do this. You know. But I had, in the end of the day, it's just a change of fonts. You know what I mean? The potato chip has a <laughs> chunky font, the Mercedes has a script. Bingo, you know. It doesn't sound like you were
1: sitting there hating yourself for betraying your artistic. No, I loved calling
2: it because, well, I didn't have an I had an artistic calling, but I didn't have any sort of hair at my ass about it. You know what I mean? I wasn't. It wasn't like I was sacrificing this my poetic vision for the potato chips and the Bentleys or whatever the hell it was. And the um, and I lo- and I loved the challenge of it. The money was fun. Um, the, everything about it was fun and it was so fresh and new and exciting yeah. and all these with dreams This stuff and of course in those days there was no market research there was no no one had a clue what was going on i was re- and i was working for bob harvey can you imagine that you know bob would come in and he'd say oh overseas they're doing this and we would suddenly start doing that whatever it was and we'd apply it to everything you know random <laughs> and we 'd sit down me and my mates and we 'd say, "How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this?" And someone would have an idea. no one questioned it, and they 'd be in the papers and billboards. And you know I had a great idea for a massport mower campaign once. I, it was just a mower, and a, but these are in the days for this, with open space and just a little caption at the top. And I had, "This is a bloody good mower." <laughs> but they wouldn't, we couldn't use it. They wouldn't, oh, no, 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 can't put that up. <laughs> just, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's there's an element of,
1: you know, um, the economic imperative to, ha- to working in advertising. I mean, you talk in the book about the need to change, adapt, to survive. But I think you're talking more about, less about the commercial than that, you know, not just taking work where you can find it, but more how you can't stay in one place creatively.
2: N- well, I... I sort of am in one place. I'm always the same guy, you know. I mean, there's a, there's a limit to how far I sort of digress. It's just a it's sort of about six tricks that I sort of fall back on. But the um, I had I I, very, I, I wrote in my, up in my studio years ago that you about to take you take what you're doing seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. So I, and I kind of live by that. So I'm very. And also, those you, you speak about advertising having any Im- impact on my sort of philosophy, and it did because the, you know, and especially commissioned work, you know, when I'm asked to do this or asked to do that, um, I listen to what they what they want instead of like when you're younger, some, if someone comes to you to to commission you to do something, all of a sudden it's this huge opportunity to express yourself. And you'll, express, you'll go to huge lengths to subvert the thing to express yourself at the cost of the thing that you're meant to be attending to. And then it, when I got older, I figured it out that the thing is to listen to the person with the thing, you know, like the... Um, I've just done a T-shirt for the daffodil day. And I knew what they wanted. You know, I just had to listen to them and apply myself, You just so you step aside not far and you just do it to, with the same level of commitment as you do when you're at the easel or whatever, you know, it's like because um, it's not too it's not like pl- selling out or, or it can be interpreted as selling out, I can tell you that you <laughs> get a fair bit of that coming my way well I used to I've hit that wonderful age where I've, I think I've moved into that long life and success is the best revenge, phase, you know what I mean?
1: I was, gonna, I was going a, to ask you... It's like the payoff, you know what I mean? All <laughs> of a sudden, whoa! Yeah, yeah I, I did wonder whether people had looked down their nose at you and said, oh, you're not being a real artist.
2: Oh, I get I, Yeah, all that stuff. I, because I would never do what they thought the, the, the real artists were meant to do, which were always these hoary old clichés, which I addressed in the book, hopefully, to... You know, I remember being at a big thing like this once, and I don't know what it was about, uh, primary school art education or something, and I had this big spiel about preparation, you know, that Louis Pasteur thing about chance favours the well-prepared, which is one of my favourites, and, and I... Boy, am I into preparation. In my view, you can't, it's almost impossible to over-prepare, unless you're interviewing me, of course. But the, the uh, and, and this one, one gentleman sort of stood up at the back and he said, and he had a tweed jacket with leather patches on it. And I thought, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> and, and, and he said, I believe too much preparation inhibits spontaneity. And I thought, oh, good luck with that, man. You know. <laughs> and it, it, when he said that, I just thought, oh, I know. I see, yeah, I see what I'm up against, you know, because it's... Sometimes it's because people so desperately want everything to be mysterious and serious that they will they will just stick mysterious and serious sort of on it like a big poultice Mm. until you can't even see the bloody thing anymore. That was that was the point of my book. I was trying to just take those poultices off. You know what I mean? Because I knew that you can't ruin it. You
1: know, you do it really successfully. There's this. I mean, you're describing your own artistic evolution, basically, and the, there's this point where you discover cubism. So we're going to go back to cubism, but um, and then I think a kind of realization that you need to go back from there and properly discover or rediscover it all to figure out something. What was that? You know, right back to. Stone Age, yeah. cave art. Oh, what
2: was your urge? Well, that's, that's, yeah, that's how the book turned into this art history thing. It, it, was gonna, it was initially called A Brief History of Paint, and I was just going to trot out all my things, you know, the, the, the poultice-tearing stuff. And, uh, and I thought, well, I'll go back to Cubism, because at art school, I got on to... I don't know how I got on it. I think with me and Murray Grimstone and we were just a... We loved Picasso, right, and Cubism... And I got it. I just totally got what Cubism was doing, and it, and it, and it wasn't what the lecturers were telling us what it was doing. They were sort of on about you know multiple viewpoints or something, which is kind of part of it, but not the thing. And I thought, well, I, it's not really that. I think what they're learning, what they've learned to do, is give equal weight to the negative space. By t- you know, they've brought the negative space into the positive space, and. The positive space into the negative, you know, like you know, like the sitter into the background, and the background into the sitter, you know, like shuffling cards. And I, well, I didn't say anything because you don't stand up and have a go at your lecturer, varsity, as a rule, do you? Well, maybe, maybe they do these days. So I just kept my mouth shut. But and I, never forgot it, and yeah. I that, that I that I had an original idea. You know what I mean? In in a in a, a set of received. Um, ideas and so I thought well I'll go when I was writing this book I'll go back and I'll examine that because I've never forgotten it and so I went back to, to write through it to write about and then I was writing put, and once you start writing it of course bingo that's when you really start to discover how much you know or don't know and thank god for wikipedia or whatever it is and um And then I thought, to to explain Cubism, which was what I was doing, I thought, well, now I'm going to have to go back and write about Cezanne because that's where it came from. When Picasso saw the big Cezanne retrospective, he went, Ching, there it is. I see what he's trying to do. See, Cezanne never quite got there because you can never get past the tank in your own zeitgeist. You know, it's comes a point, when, no matter what sort of genius you are, you, you can only see that far. And then Picasso came along and went pew, like that. And um, so I thought, well, okay, well I'll write about Cezanne, which is interesting, because I've never been that mad on him. And um, I've understood him. And then I was writing about Cezanne, and I thought, well, I can't really write about Cezanne with about... I'm going to have to deal to Corot and... And I thought, oh, shit. And I started writing backwards, and then I... Next minute, you're in the Renaissance. Well, I did. I went back, so I thought, well, I'll go back to the Stone Age. <clears throat> so I started there with a few bad jokes about... Um, I said that everyone goes on and on about the cave art because all the cliff art's been washed away. <laughs> <laughs> And all the shamanism about cave art, you know what I mean? How could they paint in the dark in the without an actual bison to look at? And I'm thinking, memory, memory, you know? I mean, I I don't know, I'm making all this stuff up. But it was having a lot of fun. But it was kind of making sense to me. I even had a go at old Werner Herzog with his multiplex flickering light, multiple leg bullshit, you know? (laughs)
1: Um, So, you know, as you track through the history of art, at a certain point in the book and in real life, I imagine, you're part of it, you know, like you, you arrive at, oh, co- at contemporary art. I And, and, I, and I think it's,
2: it's, it's modernism, but it's a certain part of modernism. Well, somebody, a couple of critics... <coughs> well, they're, 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 most people have just seemed to have fallen for it quite well, actually. The, um, it, it's a hard... I mean, it's, it's cleverly written. It's a hard book to take to bits. And... <laughs> um, because if you start criticising one, but the whole, you know what I mean, you're buggered. The whole, bu- the whole book's are shambles. But the, the, um, the, somebody wrote, said, Art seems to have stopped, the history of art seems to have stopped about in about the mid 1970s. Hmm. And I said, Yes, because that's when I came along. <laughs> that's the whole point, you know what I mean? The book gets up to me, and then, that's it. Yeah, so what,
1: you know, when you started to be an artist in the real world, what was happening? in the art world oh, that spoke to you.
2: The artists like me, driven by image and narrative, were trying to claw back a bit of uh, floor space from the conceptualists and the minimalists and everything else. I mean, art had hit a peculiar wall where, with conceptual art, you didn't have to make it. You only had to, like, talk about it or type it out or whatever, you know, Uh, which was fun and people made quite a lot about the documentation, that became a thing. Uh, but people like me and Paul Hardigan and Dennis Watkins, and we're all sitting around thinking, we'd, you know, we'd still like to paint something, you know what I mean? But how can we license ourselves mm. to produce an image in this context? And then it started to happen quietly in America. There's a few little groups that we got wind of over there. New Image, it was called. And which we responded to. So what we, we had to find a way of presenting an image that sort of fitted into this conceptual minimalist uh, space that had been created. So we, that's what we did. So I did, that, I did that ad for Art New Zealand. Like William Dart and I did it together. And I had a, a page of those stickers that kids put, on, put in their school books, you know, all those images stuck together of fairies and stuff. And I had a, a sheet of that and then underneath, and we called it pick stick. And you could buy a sheet of this and go home and stick it all over your mucus stitches to brighten them up. You know, that, so that, and that's literally what we were doing. Yeah. Taking <coughs> that minimalism, especially, and then putting something in it to look at. That was the <laughs> bright idea. Because you, you, you said just a little while ago
1: that you, know, you didn't really know what you wanted to say as an artist but it sounds like at this
2: point that you were we, starting to figure that out we did start to figure that because it came out of anger and frustration and uh, see the thing is you totally respect what you're up against obviously if you're in, uh, if you're in the art business it's, you're in it you know what I mean? Yet you, understand, you have to understand the whole thing even if you don't particularly agree with it uh, so you're reacting to it it's a bit like the sex pistols it went going on and on they hated rock and roll but in extra fact, they were just rock and roll with you know a shaggy sort of rock and roll and so they, they all secretly love the rolling stones even though they yes, they, yes i know you you've, you know. you've sort of said,
1: i think you've said something similar in the past that you know musicians look like they're just getting on with it and having fun but actually they're students of the art
2: form oh absolutely 100% you, that, that's it you, you have to know what you're taking the piss out of, yeah. you know, so it's a mutual respect thing in a funny kind of way. Yeah. You dwell
1: on pop art, um, and I guess people have put you in that camp
2: sometimes. Yeah, yeah, they do, yeah. Sometimes. Totally. What do you make of that? Oh, I buy that. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty obvious. I mean, even the landscapes are sort of pop art in a curious way. I guess people would be, you know, look, thinking more of what you've done with the four square guy. Oh, and, that. and Mickey Mouse and Tiki. I didn't invent the Four Square Man, by the way. That was I just exploited it. It was a slightly different.
1: <laughs> yeah. Story. Have
2: people thought you did? Yeah, everyone thought. Everyone seems to think I did everything. I, I, I did. I designed the Eskimo Pie Guy and the Eat a Peanut Guy and a few quite a, a, a clutch of them. But the Four Square Guy already existed. It was like designed yeah, in the forties or something when I was born. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's funny, that isn't it? I mean, we all. Remember the Eskimo pie guy and, well, those of us old enough to remember these? They are kind of, the, those commercial
2: images and logos become art over time in some way. Oh, oh yeah, they become part of the iconography for sure. Yeah. And they're there, they're just there like cliches and other to, to, to harvest and use and <coughs> to, the, to illustrate the point you're trying to make. Yeah. With Mickey Mouse turning into a
1: tiki, um, Obviously, you were, there were accusations of cultural appropriation and, and inappropriate behaviour of all kinds. I'm sure. Of that. Yeah. What do you make of that, as an artist? What are the rules?
2: Well, the, well, there are no rules, are there? Really? I mean, the, um, Andy Warhol said, Art is what you get away with," and it kind of you, st- you have to get away with it. That's the trick. And I had, I mean, I had a, a valid point to make about the shifting nature of cultural cultural imperatives, you know, how this gets absorbed by that, and that gets absorbed by that, and this grows on that, and you can't you can't ring fence a culture and say this is it, let's keep it like this, Yeah. I mean you might as well just bury it, you know what I mean, that's over because it thrives on the junk and the rubbish and the mess underneath, like a compost heap, you know So yeah. you, you kind of you get into
1: that idea in the book about this idea, I think you're talking about this, that Eras overlap, and people are influenced by other people. And in the rear view mirror, art history looks linear and oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know inevitable. But oh, actually, and there's a nice line you it. use. Yeah. You know, the pilot light never goes
2: out. Oh, did I write that? You did. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, well <laughs> Explain <that's> it. <laughs> oh well, it's it, it, well. That's the flame, isn't it? That's the one you're always looking for to go and warm your hands over. It's um, and also the yeah, that reminds me of the other thing, the, the survival trick. Because you can be... I've been quite lucky in my career. I've never been really sort of up front and... I've never been pushed up front and centre in any kind of unnerving kind of way. I've always sort of been in kind of there, you know. Mm. So the spotlight... I know what I'm... Uh, and I've seen it happen to contemporaries of mine. Like, the spotlight hits them. And they're pushed out and they're the, they're the artist of the moment. And I, I'm not going to mention names and stuff, for Christ's sake. But the... And then, of course, what happens is, after a period of time, the spotlight—somebody else pops up, a new student graduate—and the spotlight goes, whoosh. and of course, the person who was just getting used to the rosy glow of the spotlight suddenly finds himself like, "Where's the light? Why mm-hmm. do I feel so cold?" You know? Oh Christ! Now it's over them. So, and you, it's over there. So, what do you do? You, like, do you give up or? Walk away, or do you go and build a better mouse trap, or, or, or were you, you, enjoying it too much? So you're there for the wrong reason, or whatever. Yeah? Well, I guess
1: that that's yeah. the
2: question. I mean, there's a couple of places in the
1: book. I think, or you, you say it's happened to you a couple of times that you, um, you felt the need to make painting f- feel real again, in your.
2: Oh, well, that was that was an unfortunate experie- experiment. <laughs> I thought I, I tried to get, uh, remove the artifice. I tried to make, a paint, uh, to make paintings that weren't propped up with clever tricks. And then, of course, all, but all the clever tricks are just the formal language of painting. And when I left them all out, the paintings were pretty dull, you know. And then I had to start putting them all back in, in again, which felt totally artificial, you know, creating textural sort of excitement and things like that. And it was like, ugh. God, this feels so fake. W- w-
1: when was this in your actual? No, well, that was. Was this a midlife
2: crisis? That was a bit of the junk mail period. Yeah. When was that? Oh God, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> chronologically, the it uh, was when I was painting <coughs> saucepans stacked up and things like that. That was fun for a while. Yeah. There was a there was a kind of depression on, and all the junk mail got very. A, a colourful and aggressive. I, re- I remember, it was a perfect thing. I was looking for abstraction. I've got. The, I'm very big on this thing about the paintings. They have to be dynamic, but they shouldn't be responsible to anything. You know, I've got this big thing about people hanging their hat on an issue. Hmm. You know, you know, weak artists using uh, current issues to. Oh God, don't get me going on that. But it's because the. Uh, I mean, you should, somehow the. I mean my um, passion or my concern is for this the real world, you know what I mean? I'm always trying to draw attention to the you know, the oh god, that's a bit spongy. The, <laughs> you know, the nuts and bolts. Bite it and believe it, you know. And that's that's my uh, <coughs> the ongoing philosophy is that that's what the book was about, trying to get to strip away the the bullshit really. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in the process, as you say, you've, um, you've, <laughs> you've driven art dealers mad with your tendency to, to never stick to one style. I, there's a nice line in the, that you write. To patiently build a long and sound career, only to hand it all to warehouse stationery so that an engineering student can pin a $45 Frizzell to the wall of her Christchurch flat.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. I I've, mean, always been, I've, always had, I've always thought it was possible... Um, but I never believed that I'd ever that, it, that I'd be doing it, that I'd be the one that figured it out. That I remember thinking at art school, because art it was so elitist, the whole thing. You could tell it was, and I kept on thinking, because my mum struggled, even though she went to art school and didn't know what art was. But she, I used to think, surely I can paint something that like Mum would like, and like Robert Leonard would like as well. Is, is it possible? And that that. Um, in a weird way, I used to think it was such a dumb thing. I never said it out, well, I did say it out loud a bit, but I was I was always terrified of being seen as or well, dumb, I suppose. Yeah, you know. And then in the end, my dumb ideas became central, and that's when I felt I could own up to them in a funny kind of way. Yeah. Is this the democratisation of art yeah, of which people yeah, speak? Yeah, it's like you can. All the democratisation in the world is never going to make. Well, maybe it is in a funny way. I mean, look what's going on in the world at the moment. It's just. <laughs> That's another session. <laughs> you know, these nifties and everything, where, where you've got people who wouldn't have a clue about art, but are incredibly clued up about technology, making any dumb shit and turning it into a nifty, and people are queuing up to pay thousands of dollars for it. A non fungible token. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. The, 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 the art. The art as we understand it, which we all live by, it seems to be kind of being declared redundant. You know what I mean? And this, this, this democratisation thing that I keep talking about, the cheap prints and everything else, and I keep thinking, Jesus Christ, I hope I didn't start this. <laughs> you know? I should have kept my traps. You and your tea I, towels. Yeah, I'm going to be the one who's... It's going to be my fault, all this junk.
1: <laughs> Is, is there some element of that in the fact that you return to landscape painting, I think, as a kind of home?
2: Uh, well, the landscape painting came out of a desperate period of my life where I, I had the classic writer's block, midlife crisis thing, where, I, where, the bra- where the ideas simply stopped coming. I mean, I was on a roll there with that new image stuff and. Uh, and it went on and on and like one exhibition was feeding into another you know what I mean it would spin oh. off and you'd get these breakout ideas and then all of a sudden I got to a point waiting for the breakout idea waiting for the breakout idea you know and it was like no idea and I thought and then it, I realised that the, for the last for that five years from when I started that it was actually just one idea with these different iterations this break out well, they weren 't break out ideas at all they were just refinements and, and so I had this like the, the the idea, the one idea i 'd had which got me going, it was kind of done, and it, it, to do it any more would have been just gratuitous and I thought, well eh. and I'd be, by then i'd become i 'd been written up a bit and I was in, in a couple of books, and so I thought oh well i 've done it. I've, Failed school suit deliberately, and here I am. I'm an artist, <laughs> and I'm an artist, with no, no, the faintest idea what to do next. And I, which didn't appeal to me at all. Like being a non-artist wasn't definitely part. That wasn't part of the plan. Mm. And uh, then I just had the best idea I've had my whole life, and I'd been illustrating a book for the school journal, not for the school journals actually. You know, hundreds of school journals I've been doing at the, as, in all this time as well. And I, now I illustrated the, the Dennis Glover book, The Magpies, while I was having this mental block. I couldn't think of anything to paint. Meanwhile, I'm painting a whole book of New Zealand landscapes and magpies over here, thinking it was just the illustration and the art department's going, to, you know, toes up. And then I looked at this book and I thought, what if I just painted... The book without the magpies in it. You know, I paint mean, those Because I had heaps of lands. To paint the Dennis Glover book, I had to drive out in the country and photograph farms and um, the Markra trees so I could make the book le- look legitimate, yeah. you know, real. I wanted this book to be in, as intense as the poem, hence the big clumpy shaped uh, gumboots and stuff. And I looked at that and I thought, well, maybe I'll do that. And, uh, maybe I'll, I'll be a, a, Because I'd been looking at. Uh, Peter McIntyre, Russell Clark, all these up to for clues on how to illustrate that book, how to do fence posts. I mean, you have to learn this shit. You know, you can't just paint a fence post like that. Believe it or not, <laughs> and um, you can teach a fence post how to paint though. <laughs> 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 and, it's, and, I looked, and I looked at this big pile of photographs, and I just I grabbed one of them and painted it in the style of the. And then I thought, well, I'll be Instead of being a non-painter, I'll be a bad painter. I'll be like Peter McIntyre and I'll drive around and I'll be... Well, he was bad, B-A-D, with like this quotes, And from in the business I was in, you know, but of course, I mean, I'd been... I was getting quite... respect his work quite a lot with all the referencing I was doing. And I thought, well, I'll just drive around in a and I'll tour in New Zealand with a caravan and I'll paint the car where I gorge and flog them off at vineyards and, you know, be great. I'll be painting and making a living. So I, I thought, well, okay, well, I'll start out to be a bad painter. And I got one of these things, and I did this little painting, pulled all the blinds so I one not want to catch me at it. Did a little painting of, the, uh, of a road and a tree and a hill with a sun on it. And it felt pretty good. And I thought, why do I feel like I'm doing something terribly naughty here? You know, I had this frisson. I seriously did. I had a friselle frisson. It was amazing. <laughs> and I just thought, if this is so... If this feels so naughty, transgressive, uh, th- there's got to be something in it. Why do I feel like this? So I thought I want to do another one, and I'll f- see if I can fight. So I did another one and another one, and, and then I, people started buying these things, and I, and I suddenly turned into this landscape painter. You know, it was just kind of I thought, oh well, this this, this looks what what I'm doing now. You know, but of course they were like a revolution because no one from my side of the fence did landscape, well, McCann did landscapes, but, you know, his, yeah, yeah, all, yeah. it's a different, and, and Tony Formerson did landscapes, but not just straight out, you know, chocolate box sort of landscapes. I mean, I couldn't, my style of painting was such, that they went somewhere else, you know what I mean? I thought, I wanted them to be like Peter McIntyre's, but they shot over here and turned into this other thing. And then I got, and they were quite naive, because I was looking at the naive art as well. Those gumboots and stuff, and then I just thought, then I got this curious idea what, what would happen if I just practiced and got better at it? <laughs> and that became a thing. So they got finer and finer, and they got bigger and bigger, and more you know, and it was like a diorama at a model railway, um, you know, display. Well, I thought people people will go into this and look at them. And I heard people because this is another thing, all the language that the, the disparaged landscape of the peasants who used to get, say. I don't know, I know. You know, I don't know what I like, but I know what I like. Whatever the saying is, and they would look at a painting like a McIntyre and they go, "Look at the detail! Look at the way he's got the reflection on the water!" And, and I thought, "Well, I'll do that." You know, <laughs> stick in a bit of detail. You know, bit of reflection on the water.
1: It's a very refreshing way to look <laughs> at at your oeuvre. Well, I tell you, it's amazing.
2: Say. You know what I mean? Fence posts and grass and
1: yeah, all this yeah. stuff. Yeah, Um, Now, look, I did say that I'd leave time for um, questions, and that's rapidly running out, because you're a good talker. Um, (laughs) Has anyone got a really pressing question they'd like to ask? We might be able to fit in one or two, I'm sorry. There are two microphones here. If not, I have more, but...
2: um, I hear someone call out. Yep. Yep. What do you make of Banksy? Oh, Banksy's (laughs) (laughs) arse. Honestly, that's such bullshit. That's um, pretty categoric, isn't it?
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, any other questions? This is <laughs> this is part of this is that part <coughs> of that avalanche of junk that's coming towards us that I'm starting to feel a bit responsible for. Mickey and Tiki. Oh, it's just the shapes really. I mean part of my job, or any artist's job, is uh, pattern recognition, more than anything else, actually, the landscapes is all about noticing that the landscape is going to furnish a pattern of a uh, language of pattern that's going to make for an interesting painting. You know what I mean? In terms of its, its legibility, and it was just—I got to tell you—a f- a fantastic uh, s- a short story about that Mickey Deticky and the shape. This is this is the my life as an image maker is, is fascinating, the way they influence and get into the community. And I had a letter, this is without a word of a lie, I had a letter from a university in Bristol or somewhere, I haven't even read it properly, where they said they're doing, they're doing a whole computer thing about pattern recognition and mathematics. And they I don't know how they even knew about it. And they, they wanted me to give them permission to use Mickey to Tiki as part of this Thesis presentation thing they're doing about um, the history of pattern and echoes and things like that, and I, <laughs> I, was, I, thought, wow, this is, I mean, this is how you dream of it working. You know what I mean? You, you take, you, you take. This is the perfect. This is the, you know, the larva cycle of the moth. You take it all in, you churn it around, you put it out, and it goes back into the world. You know what I mean? That's, isn't that beautiful? It's going round and round like that, and uh, and if you all of a sudden you find yourself linked in, you're not just reflecting society; you're actually part of the this composting business I was talking about. Yeah. I honestly just for good measure, I see my daffodil day t-shirt that I've just done for the Cancer Society, where Daffy Duck's beak turns into a daffodil. Perfect end point, Dick. You'll be able to buy them on my fish mob, my poster company, where you can get cheap posters.
1: Um, so, look, we're out of time, pretty much. Um, thank you all very, very much for coming. Dick will be outside signing copies of his book. Please buy them and support this struggling artist. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Dick. Thank you so much. Um, well done. Have a nice evening, everyone, and thank um, Thank you.
0: Tanakwe, You've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.